0: If you have a Bible, if you open to Joshua 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and it says there in Joshua 3, 1, And Joshua rose up early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim, and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, Then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant, and pass over before the people." And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And you shall command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, you shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth passes over before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe of man, and it shall come to pass as soon as the souls of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand up upon a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they bear the ark were come into Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water for the Jordan overflows all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is, beside Zeraton. And those that came down toward the Sea of the Plain, even the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over On dry ground until all the people were passed clean over. And Father, we ask you, Lord, that we can hear your word, your voice through your word, that you'll speak to us, Lord, about your faithfulness, Lord, and that you are the living God that is in our midst. And I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. So, you know, many times you can read a portion of scripture like we've been reading in Joshua and wonder, you know, (laughs) what can this have to do with me? You know, how can I relate to these people that lived back when they didn't have bridges, cars, cell phone, Twitter accounts? You know, how can that be relevant for my life? But I think we'll see here it is very relevant to all of us. Now, the one thing I want to say in the Hebrew Bible, which is organized a little different than our English Bible, they organize it according to the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the prophets are broken in down into, in the Hebrew Bible, the former prophets and the latter prophets. And interestingly enough, the former prophets are the books Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And if you're like me, you're thinking, man, those are books of historical narratives or stories. Narrative is a story. Now how are those books and those men considered to be prophets? So you say Joshua, he, he doesn't predict the future, and he doesn't, that's not what's going on here. Well, Joshua was a former prophet, and that book is considered to be a book of the former prophets, not because he predicts the future. And actually, all of the prophets, that's very little of any prophetic ministry. They're basically Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. They're all calling people back to repentance, back to obeying the law. That's the number one function of of an Old Testament prophet. And they do do some predicting, but that's not the major part of their ministry. But here's the reason that Joshua is a former prophet is because this book interprets events that literally happened to God's people. So, in other words, as a man said, it's God's picture book. It's His picture book. It's history with a purpose. You know, my dad was ran his company or whatever, uh, worked for this company called Highlights Magazine. Maybe some of you know it. Kids, kids love it. And the motto on the front of that magazine that you get every month was "Fun with a Purpose." So, the kids, you know, they like the crafts, the stories, the cartoons, and the hidden pictures. But in actuality, there was an agenda behind that magazine, a purpose. So, the magazine's trying to educate kids, form character, shape their minds. And this fun with a purpose is actually fun with an agenda okay? (laughs) That magazine actually had an agenda behind it, and that's what's going on here. There's a purpose when God gives us Old Testament history. There is a spiritual purpose. God has a spiritual agenda that he's trying to teach us. So listen, everybody loves a good story, don't they? I mean, you can give out Chick Tracks. They have that one, This Is Your Life. It tells us like a little cartoon. Everybody reads those things, even if you throw it in the trash can, because everybody likes a good story. And I would say God in His sovereignty knows how to write a riveting novel, so to speak, or a story, even though it's true. And so to me, there is nothing boring about the Bible, is there? When you read the stories in the Bible. And so this story here, I think, this story of Joshua, we're just kind of familiar with it, but if you've never read it before, it's fascinating. It holds your attention, doesn't it? But more importantly than that, it teaches vital truths critical truths that we have to grasp if we're going to survive as the people of God. It tells us vital truths. It's teaching us that through this picture, through these stories, through these images it gives us about our God and our relationship to our God and how we're supposed to live. So listen, the overall purpose of the book of Joshua is to give us us, God's people, an explanation of how God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the taking of the land by Israel. Through this account, through this book, we learn very many theological principles, principles that help us live a godly life. But the most important one is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises to his people. That's the most important thing you're going to get out of the book of Joshua, if you don't get anything else. Because we'll see how God will fight for His people, you know, the importance of the Word, His abiding presence. But the fact that He is faithful to fulfill His promises should give us a big hearty amen. That's what He's trying to teach us. And once again, Joshua 23 says this, you know at the end of the book, after they've conquered the land that He had promised them hundreds of years ago, He says, you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing Has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you, all are come to pass unto you, and not one thing has failed thereof. And I'm saying that statement right there, I've quoted that several times, but that is relevant for all time, for all of God's people, that we can trust His promises. Remember, we said the ministries, the people, time, it all can change, but God's promises and His faithfulness never change they never change they never die he doesn't run out of power he's better than the energizer bunny because that bunny eventually stops god never runs out of power so he's given us a spiritual inheritance we've talked about that haven't we and it came at great expense through the cross. And he's telling us, like he told Israel, to arise and go possess your possessions. So he doesn't want us to just stand, so to speak, on the banks of the Jordan River and look at what we could have and talk about it and admire it. He wants us to rise up and go across. Arise and go across is what he says. And you have to do that when you have to cross that river by faith. And when you get over there, guess what has to happen? You have to engage the enemy, And that's us. What does it tell us? What did Paul say? He says we have to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. All of the life that God has given us. We have to fight and lay hold on that. Don't let go of it. Because there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of teaching out there. There's a lot of the world out there that is trying to get us to let go of what we've got hold of, what God's promised us, the life he's promised us. And that's why Paul said that. So the promises, I'm saying they have to go from the pages of the Bible to being in our hearts and something that we've experienced. Because once you've experienced God's faithfulness and his promises, that can't be taken away from you. It can't. Once you've experienced it, we need to experience the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts that are promised, wisdom, healing, deliverance, a real knowledge of God's love and power toward us, a true love for the brethren, And a boldness to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all part of our inheritance and more that we could name. But we're never going to experience anything that God has given us as our inheritance unless we're willing to fight. We will get in some kind of fight. It's called spiritual warfare. So we have got to fight for what is ours and it doesn't matter what your age is. You know, warriors retire, people retire. You don't retire in God's kingdom. The fight never stops. Actually, I think it gets worse the older you get, more of a warfare. But, you know, we're going to skip ahead here, not turn to it. But in Joshua 14, Caleb comes to Joshua. He comes to Joshua. Here's what he says. He goes, I was 40 years old when Moses, he was one of the spies, when Moses sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And the report I gave him was what was in my heart. That's what okay. He said, I told him what was in my heart, and it was positive. told him what was in my heart. He says, but my brother and the other spies made the heart of the people melt. But Caleb says, but not me. He says, I wholly followed the Lord. That's what he says in Joshua 14. And Moses, he says, swear to me that day, surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever. Why did he get that? Because he says, you have wholly followed. Followed the Lord. And so he told Caleb way back when, 40 years back, he says, I'm telling you, you've got an inheritance. I'm giving it to you. I've sworn it to you and your children because you had a heart to follow me, is what happened. And in that chapter, Caleb said, That was 45 years ago that I was promised. And he says, I've had to wander with the children of Israel in this wilderness for 40 years. And I'm 85 years old now, he says. Eighty five years old. I'm as strong today as I was back then. He says, I could swing a sword back then when I was 40 and I can still swing it just as well as I'm 85 years old. That's what he said. And so he said to Joshua, give me this mountain that was promised to me. Give me this mountain. Give me what God said was my inheritance. I want it. And he said, I saw the Anakim. They were giants 45 years ago. And guess what? In 45 years, they haven't lost any stature. They're still eating their Wheaties. They're still up there. And their cities were great and fenced 45 years ago, he says, and they still are. But he says, but if God will be with me, he said, then I'll destroy their cities and I'll drive them out because that's what he promised to me. That's what he said at 85 years old. Do you think that God thought Caleb was just a little too old to be given that land? That, you know, I'm just going to give you a place on the shuffleboard team, a little shuffleboard court? No. He didn't think he was too old for that. Because here's the next thing we read. The next thing you read in Joshua 14, it says, "...Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel." And Caleb received his inheritance. He possessed his possessions. But I'm gonna say, do you think he did that without a fight? Do you think he climbed, as I heard a guy say one time, you think he climbed to the top of Mount Hebron and met that Anakim warrior? You think he looked at there and, and said, I, I said, I'd say there, old chap, are you aware that God has given me this mountain? <laughs> Telly who, be off. You think it went like that? I don't think it went like that. I think he had to fight for what God had given him, even at 85 years old, and he was willing to. And that's what happened, because the last verse of Joshua 14 reads like this, Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and then the land had rest from war. So Hebron was formally named after its warrior, but that all changed when by the grace and power of God, Caleb took care of him. Changed the name to Hebron. And then it says there was rest. That means he had war. So Caleb at 85 years old, listen to this, old people. We don't have any old people here. Older, elder, getting on in age people. At 85 years old, he labored to enter into his rest, and God gave it to him. Amen? That's for all of us, though. He had to fight for what God had given him. And so here in Joshua 3, I want to look at three principles from this chapter. And the three principles are, first of all, the first thing we're going to look at is God sends us on unknown paths. The second thing we'll look at is that there must be spiritual preparation. And the third thing is that the living God dwells among us and leads us. So the first thing I want to look at is God sends us on unknown paths. So Israel has been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And to give some kind of perspective on that, 40 years from today would be back in 1977. I was a 17-year-old teenager, At that time. And I'm saying, you can think for yourself, I don't know how old you are, but 40 years, a lot's happened to me in 40 years. You know, I've had a lot of gains and losses. So, lost a lot of hair and gained a lot of weight (laughs) in 40 years. But a lot happens in 40 years, doesn't it? So listen, we're here, Israel's right on the edge of the Jordan, and all the people above 60, they're dead now. Everybody above 60 except Joshua and Caleb, they're the only ones. And here's the deal though, all the ones that are left that are standing on that bank, two million people getting ready to cross over, they would have known what happened 40 years ago. They would have known about that spies report. They would have known what's waiting for them on the other side of that Jordan River, those giants in those walled cities. And they would have known also though, listen, they would have known what it cost their parents to rebel against God's command and refuse to go into the land well aware of the consequences of their disobedience. And so at this point the people of Israel have got a choice again, don't they? But not really. You know why? Because they're thinking, I'm not going to wander out there and perish like my parents did. I'm going in. And they tell Joshua in Joshua 1.16 all that you command us we will do and wherever you send us we will go. And that's easier said than done, isn't it? We'll say that the Lord, whatever you tell us to do, we'll obey your word. Isn't that what we say? That's always easier said than done, isn't it? When it comes right down to it. So we read in the first two verses that Israel, here in chapter 3, they move from Shittim to the banks of the Jordan River, and God has them sit there. Looking at that river, we know later on it talks about the banks were swollen. And there is a huge drop-off when you start up at the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. And they're close to the Dead Sea. The drop-off in the land, that water's rushing down there. It's a current coming. It's not just gently flowing. At this point, it is really moving. And so here these people are. they got to be three days staring at this before they do anything. And the longer you stare at a trial, it starts getting to be a mind battle, doesn't it? And so here, we got a big test of their obedience. They say, wherever you tell us to go, we're willing to go. Whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. But man, three days after staring, and he's going to tell them they're going across there. And this isn't going to be like the Red Sea where all they have to do, no, they have to go, the priests have to put their feet in that water before anything happens. They have to act their faith that much. So the officers come to the people and they tell them, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is going to go before them. And when they see that, they should get up and go after it. But they tell them, wait a minute, you've got to leave a space there. 2,000 cubits is about a half a mile. It's a little over a half a mile. You've got to leave that half a mile space in between you. And why the space? Because a lot of people think, well, the Ark's holy and the people shouldn't get near it. Well, the Ark is holy. That's true. But that's not the reason given for this space, because look in verse 4. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, the NIV actually translates this in a way that gives the wrong perception. They've reversed the Hebrew order of the words. But in the King James, it's good. In the NAU, it's good. It says in verse 4, Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it that that means this is the purpose here's why that you may know the way by which you must go for you have not passed this way before so here's the deal if they're all crowded around the ark they can't see what's going on can they i mean when you go to a football game they don't put everybody like right on top of the field on the same level they move it back a little bit and the stands go up so people can see what's going on in front of them and that's what God's saying. He wants that ark out in front of him. So everybody could see every Israelite could see where God was leading them, what direction he was taking them. And why is that critical? Why is that critical that they see all that? It's right there at the end of verse four. He says, because it says you have not passed this way before. Never been there. They're heading into a new land. They're heading in with new enemies. They're heading into new cities. And all of it is going to be strange and unfamiliar to them, isn't it? Never passed that way before. And God's saying this. He's saying, let me get out ahead of you. You keep me in your sights. Let my presence lead and guide you because you've never passed this way before. And you'll have to trust me like you never have before. That's what he's telling them. Did God let them down? He didn't let them down because... They made that decision to obey Joshua. Whatever you command, we'll do. Wherever you send us, we will go. And God never let them down. Because at that point, on that side of the river, this group of people, they made a decision. They made a choice that we are going to walk by faith. We'll do whatever God asks us to do. And they did. All the way to the end of the book. And what do you think? Even though they'd never walked that way before. But what about their parents? What do you think their parents would have done If they could have seen the end result of the choice they made. If they could have seen ahead that they'd never walked that way before, and instead of going into the promised land, they're going to wander out in that mountainous, dry, desert region. There's nothing. We taught that message on crossroads. Reaching crossroads, don't we? And we have to determine whether we're going to trust God and obey Him and do what His Word says, how he wants us to receive His promises says, don't let there be an evil heart of unbelief that you back off. He says, no, we need to press on like them. Enter into that rest. And God enabled these Israelites to do that. But here's the way this applies to us, because all of us have an unknown path ahead of us. Don't we? So we must face the unknown ahead of us, as a man said, and we can't stop the world because we want to get off. We can't stop the world because we have an unknown path ahead of us. Israel's experience is our experience. So we get to a river in our life and we get to many of them, don't we? There's a song, Got Any Rivers? That you need to cross. (laughs) You need to know that nothing's impossible with God. But we get to those rivers. And on the one hand, when we get to this river that's going to take our faith to get through it, whatever it is, whatever form it takes, we can refuse to cross and we can stand there and look at it in fear and apprehension and terror. Or on the other hand, We can take God's promise, we can move forward, we can trust God, and we can experience His faithfulness. Can't we? You could do either one. Because doing that, I would say, that's what makes life exciting and full of possibilities. Trust in God. (laughs) I mean, for me, so I've been on the other side of the train tracks, living a wild, crazy life. And then being a Christian, I mean, it's like there is no comparison to stepping out on the promises of God, experiencing God answer a prayer in a way that it had to be Him, couldn't be any other way, and seeing His faithfulness and knowing that He's walking with you and God Almighty is with you. There's nothing like it. And that makes life worth living, as the old song goes. Because He reigns. And there's a veil, isn't there? Isn't there a veil over your future path? And we'd like to cut a hole and look through it. Think about it. I was talking to Greg about this. What if God allowed us 10 years ago to see what would have happened in those 10 years? All the trials that you would have faced. For me, I'd have moved under a bridge if I'd have seen it ahead of time. You just got to trust Him as it moves on, right? That's what they had to do. Like a guy says, you don't need to see the whole staircase. You just need to see the next step and take it. That's the way it works. Trust Him at each step. As you walk on up, because he promises the answers at the top. You might not see the whole stairway and the whole way he's going to get you there. And if you did, you'd be like, I'm not taking that ride. But that's what we have to do. So what we see here in Joshua 3 is God telling us what he told Israel. I'm asking you to take an unknown path. But he says, you're not going to be taking it alone, are you? I'll go before you. And I'll make a way. And what looks impossible to you and looks over your head, like this raging river would have looked to them, a swollen river, he says, I'll part it and I'll bring you through. That's what God says he'll do. So whether it's a new school, we got these graduates, whether you're going to college or not, but you got a whole new life ahead of you, an unknown path, so to speak. A new school, a new job, somebody stepping out in ministry. I've experienced that, doing things I had never done before which to someone else might not have been a big deal. But for me, that was like crossing that river. And you step out in faith and you you see God meet you and it's like encourages you. So whether it's stepping out in a new ministry, dealing with a healing trial that you're going through, seems like it's going to overwhelm you or a financial trial, or maybe you've got trouble in your home and you don't know where that path's taking you. We just have to trust him, don't we? He says, just keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on that ark that's up the road that I'll be with you and trust me because he says my grace and my power will lead you through the waters. That's what he did for Israel. We sing the song, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. Isn't that what he does for us? Unknown waters. Because here's the thing we need to understand, God is sovereignly in control and his providence, you know, you just think you're cruising along through life. It can change in a day, a month, at any point, can it? That one phone call, that one time you wake up, and you're all of a sudden, you're faced with that unknown path you've never been on. And that's when we have to trust Him. Now, here's what He says Isaiah 43 Thus saith the Lord that created thee, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. He gives you that assurance first. Fear not, you're mine. Remember, we said, I'm not going to hold you, keep you from drowning, and let you go and let you drown. He says, you're mine. Fear not. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's what God promises us. Amen we're on that unknown path but that ark is out in front of us his presence is out in front of us leading and guiding he promises to do that he'll take us where we need to be and so because we never know when we'll face that unknown path leads me to my second point and that is that there has to be spiritual preparation and that's verse five and joshua said unto the people sanctify yourselves for tomorrow he says the lord will do wonders among you he's telling them sanctify yourselves, set yourselves apart because he says god is getting ready to perform wonders or miracles in the midst of his people is what he says is going to happen he's going to manifest his power in a special way and he's telling them you need to be ready for it for when it happens and so he doesn't say exactly what he means by them sanctifying themselves but it's probably similar to what he told them back in exodus 19 before he appears in His majesty and His awesome power on Mount Sinai, in fire, smoke, an earthquake. They said this supernatural trumpet sounded supernatural. And it kept getting louder and louder and louder and louder. Could you imagine seeing that? But before all that happened, Moses told the people, you've got to sanctify yourselves. He told them to wash your clothes and you stay away from your wives. And that's probably what they had to do here. And so why those two things? Why wash your clothes? Because it's symbolic of putting off all the cares and all the sinful pollutions of the world. In a sense, it's a form of repentance is what he's saying. Just get yourself cleaned up before me. And as far as the wives go, what that symbolizes is they're saying you're supposed to give yourself entirely to me with what's getting ready to happen. Don't even partake of something that's lawful. There's nothing wrong with that. But at this point, God's saying I want all of you And that's what he's telling them there before they cross this Jordan River. I want all of you. I want your attention. So I'm going to do miracles in your midst. And he's saying it to us too. And so he's telling us, I want to do miracles here. And we've got to put away everything in our lives that would come between us and him. That's what it'll take. And that's a principle throughout the Bible. When God's people need him to manifest his power and his presence in a miracle in a special way. They consecrate themselves. So Esther, she knows Haman has doomed her people. He's got the king to sign this decree. There's no going back on it. It's an impossible situation. And what did she do? She consecrated herself. Three days of fasting. She goes before the king, and God providentially works that out. A miracle takes place. Nobody dies as a result of that. The disciples are assembled in the upper room. They're consecrating themselves in prayer for 10 days. And what happens at the end of 10 days? All they're doing is obeying what Jesus said. He said, you go and wait for the promise. But waiting doesn't mean to do nothing. I mean, they have dedicated themselves to prayer and seeking God. They've put everything else aside. And what happens? God comes and manifests Himself. Mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire on their head. I mean, amazing thing happened. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this, If my people, if you got trouble, he says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. In other words, just put me first. Get rid of everything in your life that's going to hinder me from answering your prayer. And he goes on to say, Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Amen? Amen. That's the way it works. Well, what we see in the Bible is, and I could go on and on and on with all that, but the wonder-working power of God is linked to what? The consecration of God's people. It is. The two are linked together. So the degree in which God is going to work through or for you and me is going to be related directly to our willingness to live holy lives. You're going to short-circuit things. You know, it said Jesus went in and Matthew, he goes into the temple and he throws out all the garbage, all the money changers, gets rid of all that. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And the next thing you read is miracles are taking place. Clean up the house and miracles take place. And I'm saying we can't afford not to live consecrated lives before the Lord. And I would say the reason for that, the reason I'm saying that is when has a trial, a major trial ever sent you a calling card a week ahead of time? They don't do they they are like right on top of you and it's a little late to get yourself ready then a lot of times right sometimes God in his mercy will deliver us and he does that many times but we don't know what any day is going to bring forth do we is a brother said we need to live ready don't we whether the Lord returns or a trial comes we're gonna need him and we're gonna need to live ready So all the revivals, the other thing, when you read books on revivals, all of the revivals throughout church history, what happens in those revivals is God's people in an area, they begin to sense the majesty of God, the Holy Spirit. And they come under conviction, a conviction of sin. And what happens is they begin to consecrate themselves and they begin to pray and seek the Lord. That always happens. And then God comes down in great power. But that is always the way it works in a true revival, a true God-sent revival. That's the way it works. What's he telling them here? Sanctify yourselves, for the Lord will do wonders among you. And I'm saying, what about on a weekly basis here? Twice a week, we get together and meet. And so do we desire to see God move in our midst when we get together? So I think at the least, we at least need to spend time in prayer before we come here and get our affections, like what he's saying here, get our affections set on God and his presence when we meet here. Amen? And I'm saying, I wouldn't dictate this as a law, but if you could, it wouldn't hurt you not to eat and to eat afterwards and see what happens. I'm saying just see what happens because it's got to be on each one of us individually to pray and bring a sense of that God's presence in here. Not depend on everybody else. Not to show up. And look, I've done it too. I've been out there many years. The normal thing is you just show up and see what's going to happen to me. What's going to happen? or Is this meeting going to be good or bad or whatever? Instead of coming with the attitude of I'm going to bring God's presence with me, seek to minister to someone, have him use me in a gift. But isn't that what we want? That really is. See if He won't come down and bless us if we'll do that as a church. Because that's what we see in 1 Corinthians 14. We're talking about God's presence in their midst. And it says there that when somebody prophesies, an unbeliever comes in there, and this word, he hears these prophecies that are coming forth, and it says that that unbeliever falls down on his face because God is speaking directly to him through the saints. And he says he worships God and says, God is among you of a truth. He is certainly here. And that's what we should experience. That's New Testament Christianity. Amen. Amen? Amen. All right, so the last point we want to look at here is point three is that the living God dwells among us and leads us. And we look at that in verses 10 and 11. And look what we have here, Joshua 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Amorites, and the Jebusites. Verse 11, he says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passes over before you into Jordan. And really, If there's a central focus in this chapter, it's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So if this were a movie, you would just see that movie, that projector, that screen keep focusing on that Ark of the Covenant. It's mentioned 10 times in this chapter. It keeps getting brought up. It's the focus of the chapter. And you know, this Ark, you think of the Ark being some, it is a little box. It's not that big. It's three and three quarters feet long, two and a half feet wide and high. That's all the bigger it is. It's covered with gold inside and out. It's got a lid that is made of pure gold to which there's two angels, two cherubim that are attached. They face each other, their wings almost touch, and they're looking over what's called the mercy seat. And it couldn't be touched because remember Uzzah made the mistake of touching it. So there's four rings attached to it. There's two poles that go through there and you have four priests that carry the ark. And inside that ark, it tells us there were the Ten Commandments Aaron's rod that budded manna and the book of the law and what did the ark represent it's the focus of this chapter it represents the presence of God it symbolizes the character and attributes of God that's what that ark symbolizes everything that's in it everything about it his truth his justice his mercy his power his greatness and his majesty And the Bible also says that it physically symbolizes his throne. When that's going before them, it is like the king, God Almighty, on his throne is passing before those people in in that river. So it's the place he makes himself known. All that power and majesty of Almighty God in a four-by-two-by-two box. And all the nations of the earth feared that box, didn't they? think about that because God Almighty says I will manifest my presence there I will speak to you Israel there when all Israel simply stated saw that ark carried by the priest go a half a mile ahead of them what are they seeing when they see that they're seeing the presence the power and the purpose of God going before them and what did that tell them When he's going before us in his power and they see what happens to that river, they're saying we can carry out anything you ask us to do because they see it is not them that's doing it, is it? It's the ark. It's the presence of God. He's the one going before. It's his power that assures their success. And so they just have to keep their eyes on the ark. They were told when it moves, you move because that is God moving. And so when the priest Feet hit the water. Can you imagine that? It's up around their ankles. You know, there's this cartoon where the four priests are carrying the ark down there, and one looks at the other and he goes, You know how foolish we're going to look like if Joshua was wrong? Now, I don't think that really happened, but think about it. That's what they had to do. They had to stand in that water with that water rushing around their ankles, acting their faith. Supernaturally, though, that water stops by the invisible hand of God. And if you read, it says it goes all the way up to Adam. That is 20 miles upstream. It didn't just stop right where they were at, like you might see in a movie. 20 miles upstream it stopped, and then it quit flowing all the rest of the way down until the ground was dry. So just as the waters, we we talked about this in Mark, when they fled and they calmed and they fled when Jesus commanded them at the sea, the same thing happens here when the ark of God, the presence of God, comes into the Jordan River. The waters flee. They back up and come up to a heap. And so what's the meaning of this miracle? Why does all this happen a half a mile out in front of the people so that everybody can see this event? Everybody's standing a half a mile back watching this happen, watching those priests step into that water, watching the water part and go all the way back 20 miles. What does that mean? Verse 10 tells us what it means. And Joshua said, Hereby, when that happens, and when it happened, you shall know. And that word means know intimately, know by experience, that the living God is among you. That's what it says that the living God, that's why that happened. Israel could know that the living God was in their midst. Compared to, he names seven nations there, they all had gods, and they're all dead and worthless and can't do a thing but the God of Israel is the living God verse 11 says he is the Lord of all the earth so the gods of the earth of the nations are powerless can't do anything compared to the God of Israel and he's saying you can know from this time forth that the God of Israel the living God is in your midst and so don't we have the same promise as Christians we do Israel was called to sanctify themselves, prepare themselves for God's presence to perform wonders in their midst. And we have the same promise. So if you would, turn over to 2 Corinthians 6. Now you can see that. Starting in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 6, and it says this. Paul writes, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. And walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, chapter 7, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So God says to us, now look what He said to Israel. He told them to sanctify themselves and I will be in your midst. You will experience my miracle working power. And God says if we'll do that, if we'll separate ourselves from all known sin, He doesn't tell us He's just going to dwell with us like He did with them. What does He tell us? He's going to dwell where? In us is what He says. And He doesn't say I'm just going to walk with you, which is what He did with Israel, walked with them dwelt with them he says i'll dwell in you and i will walk where he says he'll walk in us think about that what that is saying there we're spirit-filled christians which means he is dwelling in us and walking in us should be but who are we talking about here look at the end of verse 18 thus saith the lord almighty who is this that's dwelling in us and walking in us do we really believe this I mean, we're talking about the God of the universe. The same God that His presence was manifested in that ark parting those waters, that same God is the same one that lives in us through His Holy Spirit. There is no difference. The Creator of heaven and earth. (laughs) You think about that. The God who is adored by angels and doesn't need a thing. He has covenanted with us to be our God. The amazing thing about this, that's a greater miracle that he lives in us, walks in us, dwells in us, really than the parting of the sea, isn't it? Because think of who you were and where you had been. The almighty God, it says he will receive us as his sons and daughters and be a father unto us. The last point I want to make here, Joshua told Israel, he says, you need to follow the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And what was in there? What was in the ark of the covenant? It contained the book of the law or the word of God was what was inside that ark. And it was leading Israel, wasn't it? The presence of God and the word of God is what was leading Israel. And it's the same with us. The presence of God and the word of God, it's got to be our standard Our direction, what leads us and tells us how we are to live. Because I'm saying we are living in a day when Christians are not interested in rightly dividing Scripture. They don't want to use Scripture to determine how they should live. The emphasis now is on love, fellowship, and worship. And you're like, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. But when that's all the emphasis, and even that is not directed by the Word, because a lot of the worship is unscriptural in a lot of different ways, the Word has got to define everything we do. It does. And that's why however many years we've been faithfully taught here, 30-plus years, is nothing to take for granted and yawn at, even though we do. Because I'm going to say, we are in this country and in this world, we talked about the first point, we are headed on unknown paths. We're headed on known paths, and how are we going to navigate those paths unless we have truth to guide us? Because if we don't, and we set it aside for other things and listen to other voices and don't go back to checking out and remembering what we've heard and have been assured of and get talked out of things, which is happening as I stand here right now, we're going to end up in a ditch. You'll end up in a ditch so Israel being led by that covenant. Now I'm saying that's a picture there. We're saying Joshua is giving us a prophetic picture. So Israel being led by that ark of that covenant. The covenant is the covenant because the table of the law is in there. Being led by the word. It's a picture of the church. We are going to have our direction to walk on those unknown paths through the guidance of the Bible. That's how we're going to know how to go. That's the picture we're getting. And if we keep the word in its proper place in our life, we'll never go wrong. That will never go wrong. So just like Israel, if we obey the commandments of our Lord, we'll have the living God dwelling in our midst. John 14, it says this, Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. He goes on to say, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me and he that loves me, shall be loved of my father and i will love him and will manifest myself to him he's saying if we keep his word we listen to his commandments that that is when his presence will be with us just like it was with israel nothing's changed so that doctrine is clearly taught here in joshua three so like i said we're heading on unknown paths we've not passed this way before and we need god's presence his direction and his living presence and power. At least I do. I do in my life now and forevermore. And all this is promised, it says if we'll just give simple obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Start with the Sermon on the Mount. Simple obedience there. As Mary says, whatever he says, do. And when they did that, whatever he said, guess what? A miracle happened. It's not rocket science. So let me ask you, are you prepared? Are you consecrated? Have you consecrated your life to God? Are you prepared for whatever might come down that road? Because we don't know. So when he sends you on a path that you've never known, a way you've never passed before, that you're sure the living God today dwells with you and in you and is walking with you. So Israel was told, you keep your eyes on the ark. Where it goes, you will go. And what does Hebrews tell us to do? Keep our eyes on Jesus. Doesn't it say that? Looking unto Jesus. And what is he? Our Savior, our leader. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And that's who we we're to look at, just like they were to look at that ark. He promises he will never leave us or forsake us. That's what we talked about. So listen, God was faithful to him, wasn't he? As long as they kept that ark in front of them and obeyed the Lord and used the word to give themselves direction, it worked. So it worked for Israel 3,000 years ago over 3,000 years ago, and I'm saying it can be our experience in 2017, because like I said at the beginning, the living God never changes. He's still relevant. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you make the word real to us today, Lord, and that we know, Lord, we have paths that you have before us that we have no idea where they'll take us but we know lord that if you're guiding you're with us you're leading us if we've consecrated ourselves and we're living a holy life lord that all will work out that all we are is walking on the paths that you've ordained for us to walk in and it'll be a blessing for us in the end and i ask you'll make that real to all of us here that we're willing to trust and obey there's no other way to be happy in jesus that's the way you've ordained and i thank you for speaking to us today in Jesus' name, amen.